we're going to go ahead and, uh, and continue now. And I don't know if, uh, if this time is ever awkward for you. Uh, <clears throat> when my wife and I first started coming to Midtown East, uh, we were always surprised at how long the greeting time went on. I remember she would tell me we would go and, uh, and you know, she'd say hi to the people around her. We'd say hi to the people around us. And then, uh, you know, okay, hi, nice to meet you, great. And then go back and sit down. It's always like, oh, wait, oh, we're, st oh, we're still talking. Okay, I've got to go around and, oh, okay, so tell me a little bit more about your week then. And now we're in it. Uh, and there's a reason that we do that here. Uh, even though maybe for you it is sometimes a little bit awkward. The reason that we do it is we believe that uh, God has called us to be a community where people experience connection. That when you come here on Sunday mornings, what we long for you and for us is that this would be a place where you experience connection, where you get to connect, first of all, with yourself. That uh, as you come into this place, that you are reminded of, of, of where you are and that you're here to engage uh, with you. And that as you bring yourself here, that there are people that you get to engage with as well, that you're connected to the people around you, and that ultimately through all of this, we're connecting to God. So the space that we are creating here is a space for connection, which is why we leave all of that time that can sometimes even feel awkward uh, for us to greet each other. So uh, if this is your first time, just know you can always plan on that time happening. So just get used to it, okay? Uh, so as you guys know, uh, we're, we're in this sermon series in Genesis, and what we, what we believe is this is actually an incredibly relevant place for us to be, because Genesis was written to a people who were asking all the same kind of questions that you and I are asking. Written to a people who were asking, who are we? What's our place in the world? What are we to do? How do we live together? Where are we going? Is it going to be Okay. Genesis was written to a people who were asking those questions because God had a desire to answer those questions for his people, just like he's answering them for us. And we're going to turn kind of another page in that narrative. Well, actually, we're still on the same page. We're going to be on the first page still. But uh, that we believe God's continuing to build on those answers for us out of, out of this text, out of Genesis this morning. And as we start, I, I want to start by saying this, uh, letting you guys a little bit into, uh, into my life and my life as a child, uh, when I was a kid, when people asked me, hey, what do you want to do when you grow up? What I wanted to do is I wanted to be an artist. Like when you're like a kindergarten, first grade, you know, you're the star student. It's like, hey, what's your favorite food? Mashed potatoes, what a weird thing. But that was me, okay? And what I want to be when I grow up? Uh, an artist. And I think there were a lot of different reasons for that, but one of them is that that's what I saw my dad doing. Like he, uh, kind of as a side gig, he drafted house plans for people. So I guess a side gig as an architect. And I would watch him with, is that like, a, I guess that's a thing. Uh, but back before you did that on the computer, like he did it by hand. So we had a drafting desk and I would watch him draw these lines and he had little, cool little stencils. And, and then all around our house, when, you know, when we'd be flipping through old photo books, I would discover these drawings that he had made for my mom when they were in high school together. Oh, yeah, so sweet, right? They were so beautiful. They were, he, just, he was such a good artist. And then when I'd be at my grandparents' house, we would there were these, these drawings all over that my grandma had saved from him. Up on their mantle, actually, was this painting he had done of him and his family on the Jungle Cruise when he was a kid at Disneyland. So California, so it's Disneyland, not Disney World. Okay, that was up on their mantle. So I grew up just with all of those pictures around me. I thought, I want to be like that when I grew up. I want to be an artist, and then somewhere along the line, uh, that stopped for me. 
And there were a few reasons for that. One of them is that uh, somewhere I picked up the message that that was not a thing that boys were supposed to want to do, be an artist. I also realized that I uh, was not good at it. <laughs> so that, that will, that'll be a, a dream defeater. And part of it was looking at what I was drawing and comparing it to all these things that I saw that my dad had done. Now, I have no idea how old my dad was when he drew those things. But when I looked at him, I thought, oh, that's not me. And even as a kid, I realized um, I'm not creative. That when I would look at a blank piece of paper and I would think, I'm an artist, what do I want to draw? There was nothing that came to mind for me. And so somewhere along the line, that dream of being an artist uh, died. And here, in one of the creative capitals of our country, even of the world, that line between being a creative and, and not being creative is very stark, isn't it? That we live around people, even here in this community, who for their jobs make art. And because of that, I think that's kind of the irony of Nashville, because in a sense that the creative world kind of flourishes here, it's easy for the rest of us to identify ourselves as always oh, people who are very clearly not creative. Like, for example, a few months ago, uh, the women in our congregation got together and they like made wreaths together down in the fellowship hall. And I was debriefing that night with the women who led it for us, with Savannah and with Lauren, and one of their pieces of feedback, one of the things they were amazed by is how many of the women who came to that night came with fear to wreath-making. And what they heard so consistently was people say, oh, I don't know how to do this. I'm not creative. Yeah, that's like the symptom of being in Nashville. I'm not creative. And even if you live on the other side of that bright line between creative and not creative, even if you are a creative, you are living around lots of other creatives who are constantly making you aware of how not creative you are, right? That by comparison, my art is derivative, my art, la, 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 you, right? And so we live in this place that celebrates creativity, and yet the shame that that brings into our stories convinces all of us how not creative we are. I want to read you a quote from Rick Rubin, this guy who's won like eight Grammys, from his book, uh, The Creative Act. It says, he says, creativity is not a rare ability. It is not difficult to access. Creativity is a fundamental aspect of being human. It's our birthright, and it's for all of us. Creativity doesn't exclusively relate to making art. We all engage in this act on a daily basis. To create is to bring something into existence that wasn't there before. It could be a conversation, the solution to a problem, a note to a friend, the rearrangement of furniture in a room, a new route home to avoid a traffic jam. Regardless of whether or not we're formally making art, we are all living as artists. And what our scripture this morning says about that is yes. That what we're going to see as we go through and unpack Genesis 1 this morning is that what God is shouting over us, what he is inviting us into, is that we would be a community that participates with him and his creative acts in the world.
And my hope this morning, my prayer for this morning is that you and I would come to understand, understand ourselves in a totally different way. That regardless of where God has called you in the world, regardless of the work that he's given to you, that you would come to see yourself as a creative, as a person who has been called into the creative work that God is doing in the world. And guys, that matters. It matters for how you think of yourself and it matters for how we as a community live out the mission that God has given us here in East Nashville. That if we as a community come to see ourselves as people who are stewards of beauty, who are bringing, be- who, who are bringing beauty out I- in creation, bringing glory- beauty out of creation, and that if we see that in our relationships, in our work, in the places that God has called us and planted us in this city, do you think that would change this city? Do you think it would make this city a more beautiful place? A place that more fully reflects God's beauty? Yeah. That would change the world that we live in. So when we're talking about who we are, our identity together as people who are sub-creators, who are co-creators with God, that matters for us and it matters for us here, but it also matters for the people around us. Okay, so Ashley, I'm going to invite Ashley up. Ashley Spilker is reading our scripture this morning. We're in Genesis 1, uh, specifically Genesis 1, 26 through 31. If you guys want to follow along, it'll be up here uh, on the screen with us. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thanks, Ash. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we, we thank you and praise you that your word uh, comes into our world and creates life. Lord, we recognize you as our creator God who spoke us into existence, who spoke this universe into existence, and we trust this morning that through your Holy Spirit you desire to breathe and speak new life into us. We pray that you would do that. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So one of the things we, one of the places we have to start when we look at this text is we have to start with the question, who are we? 
And that's where we're going to start this morning. We're going to talk about who we are, what this passage teaches us about who we are, and then what it has to teach us about how, what we are to do or how we are to live in the world. And we're going to talk about how the gospel affects both of those things, who we are and what we are called to do out in the world. And it's important that we get it in that order, that our being precedes our doing. And that is so hard for us, isn't it? Like if you think about it, when you meet someone for the first time, the first thing you ask them is obviously their name, right? You introduce yourselves. And then what is typically the very next question that you ask? What do you do? That what we do is central to our identities. And, and for many of us, for most of us, for all of us in some ways, it becomes our identity. I went on a men's retreat one time. Uh, and we were told that on this retreat, we were not allowed to talk about what we do. They specifically said, you cannot ask anyone else on this retreat the question, what do you do? I'm like, what are we going to talk about? It was so awkward. Hey, okay, it's so nice to meet you. This is my name. This is your name. So uh, tell me about yourself. <laughs> what do you do for fun? I just like, I didn't even, wouldn't even know where to go with the conversation. And yet what happened over the course of that weekend is it opened up so many other parts of our lives. And, and what that kind of, uh, that rule was doing for us was inviting us to see how much emphasis we place on our doing over our being. And what this scripture, this scripture corrects that in us. Because where it starts is who we are. And what it screams out is you are significant. That before you do anything, you matter. And it's true, guys. It, this, this passage screams it even the way that it is set up. The flow of the narrative that we've been reading through in Genesis 1 is totally interrupted when we get to the creation of man. That the way God speaks man into existence is different than the way he has spoken everything else into existence. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. There's no other place in the, in the creation narrative where God uses those self-identifying pronouns as he's talking about what he's creating. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then in verse 27, Moses, the author of this text, can't help but break out into poetry when he describes God's creation of humanity. If you're reading this in your Bibles, if you have your Bible in front of you, what you'll notice is verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It's broken out, it's set apart because the text there is different. It's a poem. That God is drawing specific attention to his creation of man and what he is saying is that, man, you are significant, you matter. We talked about this when we talked about Genesis 1, that, or when we talked about Genesis 1-1, uh, that only God creates. That in the Hebrew Old Testament, there's a word for create, bara, and that verb is only ever used with God as the subject. Only God creates. Man makes, but God creates. And here in Genesis 1, that verb is only used three times. It's used when God creates the heavens and the earth in this sweeping statement that covers all of God's creation. God creates. It's used when God creates the, the sun and the moon and the stars, and it's used when God creates mankind. 
In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. But there is something special and unique about, about God's creation of us, his creation of humanity. What is being communicated is the intrinsic value in every human who exists. No matter their ability, sex, color, age, what is true about every human being is that every human life is intrinsically valuable. Because each human being is made in the image of God, is a bearer of God's image. And that's true about humanity alone out of all of creation. What it teaches us is that before we do anything, that we are valuable to our creator. That we matter to him. That that is a, a reality by itself that is worthy of rejoicing in, of praising God for and sometimes as Christians, we can get this all kind of backwards. We can come and say, oh, well, I know that I have been, I know that I'm a sinner. And that's true. And that can become our predominant way of seeing ourselves and seeing the world. And we beat ourselves up with that reality all of the time, how sinful I am, how beat down I am. And, and, and we come to think of ourselves as, as garbage in the sight of God. And we can think that we're doing something biblical when we think of ourselves that way. That's not true. Yes, of course we're sinners. Yes, of course, and we'll talk about all of that. But what this scripture is reminding us and is shouting over us is that each and every one of you, each and every one of us has been created in the image of God and because of that is significant. And for us to live in light of who God is and in light of the gospel means for us to put our arms around that reality. That we are a people created in the image of God. And this as at the time that Genesis 1 was written, this was mind-blowing. There was no other ancient religion who talked about humanity this way. In the Babylonian and Assyrian creation myths, uh, man was created specifically to provide food for the gods. That was their explanation for the creation of man, that gods were tired of doing all this work for themselves, so they created man to do the work that they didn't want to do, to bring them food. So all of the religious rituals were built around them bringing food to the gods. Humanity, in the eyes of these kind of creationists, was, was, was purely utilitarian. That their value came from their being and from their doing. Oh, and in contrast with that, the story that we have here in Genesis 1 says, no, there is value in who you are because God has made you. And then if you look at the kind of the Egyptian cosmology, uh, that the way that Egyptians thought about the world is that they talked about the image of God, but there was only one person who was created in the image of God. You know who that was? It was the Pharaoh. There was one, one person created in the image of God. And that's why when that person died, that person became a god. But it was true for nobody else. Everyone else found their value from doing what the Pharaoh told them to do. And in the face of that cosmology, Genesis 1 shouts, no, every single person has value and has meaning. And we hear that and we think, well, yes, you know, of course, everyone in the modern world believes that to some extent. 
And yet, it's a, it's a belief where there is so much tension in our, in our world and how we play that out, isn't it? Isn't there? And what we see in a kind of our modern cosmology of us kind of the universe uh, exploding out of this big bang and us arising from, arising from this primordial soup is that there is no solid foundation in that way of thinking about the world for us to be anything other than just masses of matter. The January, February issue of The Atlantic this year, uh, it was called Notes from the Apocalypse. One of the articles in the issue uh, was titled, The People Cheering for Humanity's End. A disparate group of thinkers says we should welcome our demise. And the whole article was about this group of thinkers who were saying uh, and writing about and, and kind of working out the implications of the fact that humanity are just these blips of matter. And they would say, because of the ways that we have destroyed and, and devastated our ecosystem, we actually don't deserve to exist as a species. They would be better if we were totally wiped off the face of the map. It's just another way of saying the same things that all of these ancient cosmologies have always said, which is that uh, what we do proves whether or not that we have value. And because of the damage that we have done in the world, we don't have any value and should be done away with. And in the face of that cosmology, Genesis 1 shouts, no, you are intrinsically valuable because God has created you, because you have been created in the image of God. And that truth, that reality, that's true about life at all of its stages, that, that underpins, serves as a foundation for all that we want to be about as Christians in the world. It's a reason for us to care about things like social justice. It's a reason for us to care about things like equality of all, of all people. Those, those aspirations are rooted in this principle, this idea of us being created in the image of God. And even if you think back, back to the Enlightenment, now we're in the history stuff, which you guys know I geek out on, okay, right? Uh, the Declaration of Independence. Uh, that we've been, we have, wow, I just lost it. Oh, my goodness. We've been endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights that are among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That foundational to this idea of who we are as humans and us pursuing our good, our happiness in the world is this idea that we are endowed by a creator. And that's not uniquely true about the American Declaration of Independence. That was true in the French Revolution. The Declaration of the Rights of Man, the foundation of that was the fact that we have been created in the image of God. That all of this, this humanitarian project that we are about in our world, the foundation of that project, even when we choose to forget it, is that we have been created in the image of God. That who we are precedes what we are to do. So then we get verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. That because of who we are, this is the assignment now, the work that God has given his people out into the world. that what God is saying to his people, to these first people he created, is go and take my image and take it out into 
into the furthest corners of the earth. Go and cover the world with my image. I was reading this, uh, this theologian, this professor, Richard Pratt, and he talks about how this would work out in the ancient world, how people would have heard this idea of the image of God. That the way that, uh, that kind of empires were maintained in the ancient world is that emperors would take likenesses of themselves, images of themselves, like statues of themselves, and they would send them out over their empires. And they would place them at all of these key places. They'd be in every village. They'd be uh, kind of at the gateway to every road that was constructed. It's kind of like when you drive through Shelby Park and there's that sign that says, this improvement has been paid for by Mayor Cooper, you know? It was like that. So when someone came to your town to collect your taxes and, and you would say, hey, well, why should I pay these taxes? Well, they go to the emperor. I'm like, well, who's the emperor? Well, you can see his face right there. It was a way of, of taking the presence of the king and putting in all of these different places in the empire to project power and authority. And what, what Genesis 1 is saying is that we are to be people who take God's image upon, who have been created in God's image and who take that image out with us into every corner of creation. And when we say it's to project his power and authority, uh, we hear that in a, in a sin-corrupted way. It's the same when we hear the words, uh, subdue it and have dominion over that when we hear those words, what, what comes to mind for us is all of the ways those things have been abused. That dominion has become domination. But that's what sin does. Friends, that is not the kind of dominion that our God has called us to. Think about what we've learned about God so far as we've studied Genesis. That our God, he uses his power to bring about life in the world, to create things of beauty that for us to manifest God's power in the world is to carry and create beauty wherever, wherever we go. That we worship a God who, who brings life with his word. And that as his representatives, we're to be a people who go out into all the places we have been called, into all of the relationships we have been called into, and like him, to bring life. And ultimately, we see that modeled in the person and work of Jesus, don't we? who as the king of the universe came not to, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So when we read these words, to have dominion, to subdue, that we're to think of that uh, in, in light of how scripture encourages us to think about who Jesus is and who God is, God the Father is. Bringing life and beauty everywhere we go. as we go out and bear the image of God, we are bearing with us God's presence and manifesting that to the world. But that's the call he's placed on humanity. To be, to be creators, co-creators with him, bringing life and beauty out into the world. And that teaches us how we think about our work. Yes, our nine-to-five jobs, or our jobs that we wish could be confined to nine-to-five, right? But also all of the places God has given us anything to do. See, it, it, would, it would be so foreign to someone in the ancient world to talk about your job as this discrete thing that you did in your life apart from all these other places and callings in your life. 
Because in the ancient world, the, your life was, it was just one thing. That the people that you worked with were the people that you lived life with. They were your relatives and they were your friends. They were the people who bought your grain from you and sold you your pots. You know, it was like all together. So when we're talking about our calling, this life of bringing beauty, of manifesting God's presence to the world, we're talking about all of the places God has called us, all of the roles he's given us, all of the relationships he's placed us in. Richard Pratt, that theologian I talked about earlier, he, he says it like this. He says, the great king has summoned each of us into his throne room. Take this portion of my kingdom, he says. I'm making you my steward over your office, your workbench, your musical instrument, your kitchen stove. Put your heart into mastering this part of my world. Get it in order. Unearth its treasures. Do all you can with it. Then everyone will see what a glorious king I am. That's why we get up every morning and go to work. We don't labor simply to survive. Insects do that. Our work is an honor, a privileged commission from our great king. God has given each of us a portion of his kingdom to explore and to develop to its fullness. That is the kind of work that we've been called into. And yet, let's admit, our work often does not feel like that. Is anybody else with me there? Yeah, okay, I see a hand there. I can get an amen, right? That rather than our work being this thing that we bring our, bring our full selves to, what, what, we, what we often discover and experience is that our work is this thing that defines us. Then rather bring the fullness of who we are and how God has created us to our work, uh, we go to our work to find fullness. And that has looked different at different, uh, even in the last several decades, right? If you think about kind of the post-war boom, that the way people thought about work is work is the place that gives me security. I want to work the same job for my whole life. And I'll work my way up. And the, the part of that that was, that was so tempting and it was so beneficial is it provided this sense of security. And work can do that. There's also this desire that we have, and this has been a little bit more recent, that work would be the place that provides our significance for us. That we, we come to our work and we say, man, I, I, I want to have meaning. I want to experience having meaning, and I want my work to be the thing that tells me that I have meaning. That if my work feels meaningful, then I have meaning. So we can come to work to find our security. We can come to work to find our significance. We can also come to work to find support. And we see this more and more, that people come to their work saying, I, I, I want to come to my work and I want this to be a place that I feel emotionally supported in my life. I want work to be a place that I experience care and comfort. And there is something good and true, a desire in all of those things that we say yes to. And yet, at the same time, we realize, oh, we're coming to work and asking work to do something for us that work cannot do. What has happened to our world and our lives and the way that we think about our work is that this happened way back in the garden and it's been happening ever since. Is this call that we've been given to bear God's image out into the world, we have told God, no. I will not do that. I'm interested in bearing my image out into the world. That what I want to declare is not how great you are, but uh, to declare how great I am. 
rather than receiving my value from God as something he has given me, I'm saying, I'm going to go and I'm going to create that value for myself. I'm going to find it for myself. I'm going to make that identity for myself. And so our work becomes all of these things it was never designed to be. That what was promised to us as a freedom becomes its own sense of a prison. And that is where we can be so grateful that our Jesus is more than a good example for us. Because if all our Jesus is is an example teaching us how to be good workers, I'll just say all that welcomes into my life is a lot of shame. Because I am acutely aware of all of the ways I am not like Jesus. But our Jesus is so much more than a good example, isn't he? That he's our savior. That Jesus came and he, he, like us, bore the image of God, and yet he bore it perfectly. He filled it up to its fullness. He expressed every bit of what it meant to live in the image of God. And yet it's that Jesus who went to the cross for us who because of what we had earned from all of our rejection of God and telling God, I will not let you be king here in my life, Jesus died for that. He paid for it. He covered it. And that what he did in us is he, he started a work of recreation. Okay, so uh, in the ancient world, when people heard this word of image, right, and again, Richard Pratt, he talks about this, that when they heard the word being created in the image of God, what they would have thought of is all of these little clay idols that people were around everyone's houses, Yes, they were like statues of emperors and pharaohs, but they were also everyday uh, images. And, and we know that because we find pieces of them scattered throughout archaeological digs of the ancient world. And these, these idols, these images that people made of their friends, of their family, of gods, of uh, birds and animals, things they would bow down to, they were incredibly fragile they broke so easily. That's why we have so many pieces of them. And so when people heard they were created in the image of God, they would have heard the glory of that and they also would have been aware of how fragile it was. And that when we've rejected God's kingship, what's happened is that image of God in us has been broken. Not erased, but broken. And the work that Jesus was doing through his life that he was doing on the cross and in his resurrection is he was putting those pieces back together, not to restore what was, but to create a new thing. So 2 Corinthians tells us that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is so clear in Paul's theology. He talks about how we have been created in the image of Adam, which is the image of God, but also an image that's been broken. And that now, through Christ, we are being remade into a new image, into the image of the heavenly man. That we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another as we are being conformed to his image. That when you are in Christ, God is doing a recreative work in you. So yes, he's calling us out into the world as creators, but the work starts with the work he's doing in us. And this is so critical if we are gonna be a people who are gonna be creators out in the world because the thing that will stifle and strangle creativity in your heart and in your life is shame. That's what shame does. Shame stifles and it strangles creativity in all of its forms in our lives. 
in all of our relationships, in all of our roles. I will tell you this is true for me uh, as a parent. There are lots of things about parenting that I love and I have fun being creative with. Uh, One of the things I despise is when people talk about what it means to be intentional as a parent. Like I have people give me books about, there's one called The Intentional Father that has been sitting, well first it sat on my bedside table and now it sits in a bin in my closet. Uh, because when, I, when, when people talk about being intentional in their parenting, the amount of shame that wells up in me, guys, is overwhelming to me. Now when I think about uh, all of the things that could mean and all of the ways that I have tried to take steps in that, we'll start a new routine, we'll do this thing at the dinner table, we're singing songs, memorizing verses for a few weeks, and then it stops. And that when I hear that call into intentionality, what I'm confronted with is all of the way, and my oldest kid is only four. Come on. I got a long life to be a dad, and it's already freaking me out. That's what shame does. That shame gets all up in our grills and it tells us, you can't, you shouldn't. Look at all the ways you've failed. If I were to ask you for the top five moments of your parent in your parenting, would you be able to identify them? No, you would not. The top five moments in your life as an employee, as a spouse, as a friend, I think you could get there eventually. But I will tell you, they probably do not come to mind like that. But if I were to ask you for your five biggest failures as an employee, as a friend, as a spouse, as a parent, as a son, as a daughter, as a fill in the blank, could you fill that role pretty fast? (laughs) Well, praise God for that. Because I think for the majority of us, we would be able to do that because those are the scenes that play again for us over and over and over again in our minds. That's what shame does. Those are the tapes it brings out and hits play on all the time. It's what we do and it's what our enemy does. Oh, and guys, it is, the, it is the ongoing work of Jesus in your life and in my life to meet us in those places of our shame. Hebrews talks about how Jesus despises our shame. Okay. Uh, it doesn't mean that Jesus hates those things in our lives like we hate them. It means that our Jesus despises what shame has done to us. And that what he desires to bring in those places in our lives that are covered in shame is healing. That there's beauty in those places that Jesus wants to bring out and work into our lives. Guys, I will tell you, that is a painful, painful process of letting Jesus love you in your shame. When you've ever had this experience where you've fallen on the ground and gotten gravel up under your skin, the process of healing from a wound like that is painful because all of that gravel has to be scraped out and dealt with and bandaged over in your hands or your, or your knees, wherever you've had that fall for weeks afterwards. It's It's sensitive. And yet that's the way the healing process works. That's the same thing for shame. But for Jesus to come in and address those places in our lives, to touch them and, and, and to take them out, to look at them with us, oh, it's painful to see. 
And yet his desire there in exposing those places in our lives and meeting us in those places in our lives is to bring healing and wholeness. Not to cover them up and to push them down, but to let us look at them and to say, there's beauty I want to bring out of this place in your life. But it's in this place I'm inviting you to learn how to be creative, to think in a different way, to move beyond all of the I can'ts, I haven'ts, I shoulds, and to, to create with God, to ask him, Lord, what are you doing here and now what are you calling me into? And if we are going to be people who are going to be co-creators with God out in our world, that the first thing we've got to do is allow Jesus to address the shame in our own hearts. And the image I just cannot get over, I've been thinking about this morning, is this picture of uh, the, the event, the, the, the things, the things that I have done, the things that have been done to me, my shame sitting in front of me. And that Jesus would come up uh, and put his arm around me and look at that thing with me. And I'd be willing to sit there in silence with his arm around me looking at it. And that what would come next is him uh, enfolding us in a giant hug, expressing his love and his care for us even, even in that place. And they're inviting us into something new. So as we worship this morning, as we, as we respond uh, to the good news of what Jesus has done for us, he's dealt with our shame, that he's cast it as far as the east is from the west, that our sin has no authority in our lives anymore. How would we experience his recreative power freeing us and inviting us to beauty in our own lives and then through that inviting us to be co-creators with him of beauty out into our world. Let's pray. Father, I confess, Lord, we confess uh, how often we despise your image in the people around us and how often we even despise it in ourselves. Oh, Jesus, forgive us. Lord, forgive us for the places that we have uh, worn the shame, the chains of our shame, uh, thinking that we are doing a service to you, that somehow we are, we are following you uh, by continuing to let our sin uh, define us. Oh, Jesus, would you forgive us? Would you free us? Lord, even as we worship this morning, uh, would you come alongside us, look at those places of shame in our lives, Jesus, and would you sing your song of love of forgiveness uh, over us. Would you fill us up, Lord, uh, with your beauty? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.